Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. I'm in Arizona today, sitting next to dear friend and White Sox manager, Mr. Tony LaRussa. Tony has 2,821 wins and counting to make him the second most winningest manager of all times. He has managed the Oakland A's, Chicago White Sox, and the St. Louis Cardinals, bringing home three World Series championships and 13 division titles. In 2013, Tony was inducted into the ultra-exclusive Major League Baseball's Hall of Fame. He's a philanthropist and has an animal rescue foundation that Charity Navigator rated the number one celebrity charity in the country. Tony has a lot of insight when it comes to leadership and baseball, which leaves us with a lot to cover on today's podcast. So let's get started. Welcome to the show, Tony. Appreciate the opportunity, and I'm looking forward to it. Congratulations. I should start with on the lockout being resolved and you going back to work tomorrow. Breaking news, huh? Feels more like a relief than congratulations. You know, it's been so difficult to not be out there on time and the effect it's had on our fans. I know they're not happy, and but at some point, you know, you negotiate and it takes takes longer than you hope. Or wanted to, but I'm glad finally we got it resolved. How many lockouts have you been through in your career? Between lockouts and strikes, maybe five or six. And do you find it challenging to get the season started again? What's the mentality of the players and coaching staff whenever you have a delay like you just experienced? The most important part about this one is, and they're all different. One of them came month of May, one of them came in August. The most important part of this one is that it really dragged on into the beginning of what would be spring training. And spring training is really very carefully planned. You know, you allow pitchers about six weeks to get ready for opening day. Sounds like a lot, but they don't hit every day. So it's only so many times they pitch, build their arm strength. Hitters don't have to be there six weeks, so, you know, it doesn't hurt them as much. But still, they got to build, they get conditioning into their legs and and swinging the bat. So... This one is going to be a challenge for everybody. We're all in it because it's starting into the middle of March as far as training. Not sure exactly how many days we're going to have. At one time, they had hoped to get at least 28 days. I don't think it's going to be that much, which means that everybody is going to be flexible and paying a lot of attention to the conditioning of each and every guy. And I guess what about the back end of that? Because you're going to have to make up some games with double headers and stuff like that. And that seems like that would be exhausting as a team to have to take that on now. We're waiting. You know, they haven't announced exactly how, what the formula is going to be, but it's going to be, you know, if we miss two weeks of games, they got to make up two weeks. They said they might make up three or four days at the end of the season and double headers. The way I look at it is the major leagues are supposed to be challenging. If it was easy, anybody could go through it. Any team could win. So this will be a special challenge for each club. And the back end of it, or at the foundation of all this, we're lucky that this we're in a profession that we love. And even though this isn't the way we hoped it would start, once we get started, we're still very fortunate to participate in Major League Baseball. Okay, so you're the second most winningest manager in Major League Baseball history. You're Hall of Famer with 13 division titles and three World Series wins. From time to time, you're sporting those rings out in public, which fans love to see, love to take pictures with. Is there a ring or a championship that stands out to you more than the other, or do they all feel as equally important to you? Well, there's a couple, three answers to your question. First of all, what you're taught when you start a new year is that you do not. What you've done in the past has virtually no meaning going forward. It's, my career doesn't help me with my responsibility as a manager. Last year, we had success and won the division, got beat in the playoffs. And the only way that helps you is to look back a little bit. What did we do right? What could we improve on? But it's all about what's next. And I, you know, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the past. In fact, when you mentioned three World Series, we lost three World Series too. And the losses hurt more than the wins. You enjoy the wins. If I look at the rings, every one of them is special, just like if you had kids or if you have pets. 
I would say always, in fact, there's a quick story behind it. When you get in the Hall of Fame, they give you this ring. And if you put the championship rings together, the smallest by far is the Hall of Fame ring. It's really petite. There are class rings around the country, people senior rings, that are bigger than this one's, but it's one that has the most meaning. It's a very exclusive club. And the story behind it is after 10 years when decided I would offer the chance to manage the White Sox, I took the job. I had, you know, probably a dozen Hall of Famers who were pleased that I got back in. And half of those dozen really insisted that I retain the Hall of Fame route. So they insisted that I wear the Hall of Fame ring during the game, which is something I've never done. Wedding rings that I've worn. But if you would go back and you watch, I did wear the Hall of Fame ring every game. And it was kind of a reminder of me that don't embarrass the Hall of Fame by, <laughs> by embarrassing the job that I do. So since we're on the topic of the Hall of Fame ring, I want to talk about your experience getting inducted and what it was like in Cooperstown. It's so nostalgic and beautiful up there. And you had a great class of inductees. So tell us what it was like that weekend for you. I was uncomfortable for two reasons. The first one was easy because you have to make an induction speech. Everybody just really worries about that. And they make it, make you do it on Sunday after you've been there for three days worried about it. But the second thing is more important about the discomfort is I, I didn't feel and I still don't feel I belong there. You know, people sometimes toss out stuff like that and they want somebody to reassure. No, no, you you definitely earned it. And I, I learned a long time ago when you want to be a leader, one element among all others that you must not ever mess with is trust. So I'm very careful what I say when I'm serious because you ever get caught BSing lying, credibility is gone in your leadership. Value is zero. So when I say I didn't feel like I belong, I explain why. I grew up loving the game of baseball and knew the Hall of Fame, knew about the Hall of Fame. I believed, still believe that it's the great, great majority of people that get inducted are players. They're the players in the generation they played that stood out and they compared with the very best of their time pitcher player. I also recognized, though, that sometimes the manager would get in, and I always felt that it was because, yes, he had enough success as a manager, but he was a personality. You know, the game of baseball, fans love to hear stories, and they like guys that are bigger than life. So I think about Sparky Anderson and, and Earl Weaver, Tommy Lasorda. These guys told stories, and the fans loved them, and then they managed. Well, I'm not a storyteller. You know, I'm kind of a relentless grinder. I didn't think I had, you know, that type of extra asset that you would need to have. But I was around a long time, and I got in. I feel, I felt and I feel that rather than be personal, it really is a reflection of the, the three organizations. You know, Chicago in the 80s. And I go to Oakland in the 80s and 90s. And I go to St. Louis for 16 years, 96 to 2011. Those organizations were so special. And finally, I felt like I was the most fortunate manager of my generation, which is 30 years. I've got a lot of friends that are managers. And they all have experienced some good times with the organization. And sometimes where it just was really hard because there was a piece missing. And I mean, you have to have a very coordinated from top ownership through the front office, scouting, player development, down to guys in uniform, major, minor. When that piece is missing, it's hard to win, if not impossible. I can honestly say that every year that I managed, the coaching staff and I always were supported, always. Even the year I got fired, it was it was a difference of an opinion there. It really wasn't that Ken Harrelson didn't believe in supporting the manager. So I think my good fortune... I have managers that are friends of mine. If they had been where I was, I think they'd have the wins. All that adds up to always being uncomfortable. But ever since the speech, 2014, whenever I go back, amazing experience because I'm a baseball fanatic. I'm surrounded by these unbelievable players. My favorite part is on Duction Sunday when they're, as each one's in, introduced, they give their record. 
and it blows you away how great they were. And your plaque at the Hall of Fame, you chose to go in with none of the, like the logo on your hat, right? It was a little controversial, but to your point that you just said, it was about all three organizations. I think that you received a little pressure there from the media or fans or whatever you want to say, questioning why you didn't go in with a Cardinal logo on your hat. Here again, you know, you learn. I think it's really important you trust your gut and you don't cover your butt. And when I got in, right away it was assumed I'd go in as a Cardinal because of 16 years, two World Series. When I got in right away, I said, wait a minute. How am I going to disrespect my first 16 years? I can't do it. If I didn't get the opportunity in Chicago and have that first experience in 83 and learn from that, if I didn't have that experience in Oakland where you play those great teams and go to three World Series, even though we long one, I mean, it all comes together. And what you don't want to do is disrespect. So I said, I went to the the honchos there, you know, the, the executive director. I said, look, man. And he says, well, there is a way to do this that we'll just not put a logo on your hat. So they, they had me kind of in a profile where you really can't see that I don't have it. And I caused some crap, especially from St. Louis. They were very disappointed. The people in the organization are fans that it wasn't about St. Louis. But I asked them to understand, and I don't know if they did or not completely, because they take everything very personal. They should. They're very proud of the St. Louis Cardinals. But other baseball fans, I think, understood with later on, in January, Bobby, Joe, and I got in in November, December of 13 for induction of 14. Well, the normal Hall of Fame balloting came in January, and that's where Frank Thomas, Tom Glavin, and Greg Maddox. You had a great class, really. You had great a great class. Well, Greg Maddox decided that he had started with the Cubs, and even though he's best known for his work with Atlanta Brace, he wouldn't disrespect them. So once Greg didn't put his number, then, hey, nobody cares about Tony. <laughs> so did you ever think at that time that you would be back at the White Sox? I mean, how full circle your career has come? No, I thought, you know, I knew why I left. The only little inkling, I didn't leave because I was out of gas. You know, it wasn't like I was worn out. It was getting harder every year because, you know, you put a lot into it, but I had enough to go keep going, especially after winning a World Series. There was another big issue of responsibility that wore me out, and I really don't want to, it's not important to get into it, but it's something that I took on. You just really drive yourself nuts trying to do it right. And I had had enough of that pressure, and sometimes it gets misunderstood. And But I knew I loved the game, and then I had the, uh, here again, this good fortune that, that's wrapped around me. Commissioner Selig asked me and Joe Torrey to stay, stay with the game. Joe went into operations, and I was the special assignments. Then I had a chance to be upstairs with the Diamondbacks and then Boston and with the Angels. And I learned how important it is, the front office work, and how frustrating because once the game starts, you can't do anything. And so I would complain to my friends. I'm up there just dying because you want to do something, you can't. So when Mr. Ryan Storff Jerry called and said, look, we're going to make a change, I went, I was stunned, but I went, wow, I've been complaining to my friends about being tortured up there because I said, you know, you got to put up or shut up. And I took the job and uh, I knew because I had followed them that they were here again, the good fortune. I'm getting tired of saying it's all true. You walk into a job where they're really good players. They like each other. They like to practice, like to play. So it was made to order and and, you know. So what was it like after all those years putting back on a uniform again? Did Mr. LaRusa have any emotion? <laughs> <laughs> you go back to square one, right? Now, the way you get through the first 34 years was that every year you started fresh. So you knew that you had to do certain things. You had to start by building relationships of respect and trust. No matter how many years you've been together, any relationship, you start forgetting to cross the T's and dot the I's, you know, as a husband, father, or whatever, you're going to lose that relationship. So I had to build, I had to be serious about having these guys know that they can trust me and respect me because I got something I can help them with. And then you get back into the competition and, you know, analyzing the talent. So it was very much like what I've been doing. And I just put my head down and, you know, there's a lot of criticism about me coming back, which I didn't think was really all that bad because I was older 
and people thought I didn't relate and all this kind of stuff, but I just put my head down and did my job. Well, I don't think people can appreciate if they don't know you, the stamina you have and how you're just a fierce competitor. And even when you were upstairs, you know, watching the games, like you hang on every ball and strike, even though you're not able to control it sitting in a box, but you've always just been a fierce competitor and definitely on the field is where you belong. So all those years passed and you were still involved in the game. Yes. From front office or upstairs. But once you got back into the dugout, how did you feel the game had changed since you last left it? Right, before I answer that, I want, I want to, because I know some podcast people are listening to it. So when I listen to a podcast, you know, I have a, some note, a notes and I want to write something down. And, and and so I want to I want to give something maybe the fans or whoever's listening will like this enough. My stamina over the years came from personalizing my responsibility. So we preached to players: you need to personalize your commitment to our team, right? Well, if you're preaching personalization, then you need to personalize yourself. So every day, literally every day. I stood in front of the mirror, and I wanted to be able to say when the day was over, I did my best. And if you make that commitment, and you honestly make that commitment, it's a promise that you make to yourself, then you just crank it out. That's one thing that I, you know, I do pat myself on the back, that I was tough enough and relentless enough never to vary. I was never going to not do my best. Then when I got back in, a lot of people felt that the game, because the players had changed, they were younger and more expressive there was more me- metrics. I don't think people understood that our coaching staff for years, we embraced information. We sought it. You always praised Dave Duncan for it, I remember, because yeah. he kept great, you know, you would always talk about the charts that he kept on players and pitchers. Our staff embraced it. I embraced it. It's just that you need to understand, which I, I felt some organizations take the information and they drive their coaches and manager nuts thinking that they can script games. It's just like playing fancy baseball, you know, but it's not fancy. It's real baseball with men, not machines. So we took the preparation, but when the game started, White Sox believed and our coaches believed that we knew that we had the, the authority to make adjustments and use common sense about what we see. So that part of it was healthy for me. And the other part was just, Winning the players over on a daily basis, showing them that, that I was part of the staff and, and we're there for them. You have a fun team. You can tell that they have a lot of energy behind them and your coaching staff. Wow, you have a great coaching staff. I had the pleasure of meeting them and the energy that they bring to the table. I think you have a great, great organization on your hand. And let's talk a little bit about that energy and contagiousness in the in the clubhouse and how you lead an organization with all that personality and how you direct that energy in the right direction. Locker room leadership. Yeah. Well, you got to remember that when you or the coaches stand in front of the team, you're a coach. You're not a player. And the reason I draw that distinction is that especially in the last 30 years when players have had the right to move around, you know, there's fame and fortune is a potential distraction. Sometimes their family and their friends or agents say, hey, you get yours. You get, the coach is going to say, do this for the team, but you want your innings to pitch. You want your at-bats. You have to break through that. So you present the team thing, and you're trying to convince guys, look, let's do this together. Well, I don't care who you are. You're Bill Belichick or Vince Lombardi, the great coaches of all time. At some point, they're looking at you as a coach, especially in the last 10, 15 years. So what you need is locker room leadership. I heard the one term we've used for years, co-signers. You want a group of leaders in that clubhouse that you meet with and say, look, this is our program. Tell me what you disagree with, and then we're going to try and work through it. And if we all agree that this is the way we're going to try and compete, then you make a commitment that you're going to be in there. If somebody starts saying, well, why are we doing this? You say, because that's how we do things. If they go south. So a lot of the problems that potentially could develop, the locker room leadership takes care of. If it's a big enough problem, then that's why you have the office. You take care of it. You don't want to ruin relationships. But, you know, that part of it was true before. It's true now. It's just that if there's one thing that I would point to, and this happens around 
your walk of life, whether it's public or personal, then the amount of distractions that each of us face could be your kids. It could be you personally. There's so much out there that can distract you from the focus of whatever you're doing at the moment. If you're being a parent or you're working, if you've got a a responsibility, you've got to really challenge yourself. And that's what we challenge the team. Tune out the distractions. What's it's our team against their team playing a game of baseball. That does not happen automatically. It happens now because you really prioritize it. And another point that I, that I used to write down, as a leader, you're allowed, not only allowed, you're encouraged to really think about what your group needs, and you make a list of things that they need. And then you prioritize, what's, what's the most important thing? If we do this, that helps them the most. Helps our, and then you get down to the bottom one, right? Well, then you start cranking the ones on top because they're the highest priority. And then if you've got time, you keep going on and on, but you need to prioritize. And there's a a challenge to management and leadership because if you prioritize the wrong thing, you know, you you give attention to something and you let the big things get away, you get beat. So you mentioned Bill Belichick. I know he's a great friend of yours. And talk about what you've learned from Bill from a leadership perspective. Well, here again, (laughs) this is such a... uh, common thing, but maybe people don't understand how much I say how lucky I am because I haven't been lucky. I met Bill because we trained with the Cardinals in uh, the Jupiter area, and Bill spent some of his off-season there. We've become friends. His consistency over the 20 years, last 20 years, it's human nature when you have the success they've had to lose a little edge. You start celebrating. you you're not as hungry. He has this incredible knack for getting himself and the staff and his players. And he, and what I learned from him, how he uses the leaders. I'll give you a little thing that he uses that I'm going to use this year with our team. They win the Super Bowl. Other than when they have the party to get their rings. And if there's something about that Super Bowl season that, that he wants to remember so they can improve on or make sure they have, there's no mention of last year. It's all about this year. And he pushes now, now, now. And you, you hear it after a, a Sunday game, and they, they're trying to ask him some tricky questions. He says, well, we're on to Atlanta. So his ability to, to, to take what happened last year and learn from it, but then make sure that the players, the priority is now, 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 now. Also, I learned with this relationship thing, which I didn't know about him, how much he studies his entire roster. He knows the names of the wife and the kids. And he often says how you perform on the field is affected by what's happening off field. So he'll he'll walk around and he'll see if you get to know guys, you know, Amy's not right today. Well, you check with the trainers. Is she hurt? No, she's okay. Well, Hey, uh, you know, what's happening with Matt? Is Kipton? And you, oh, yeah, well, Kipton's got the flu or something, you know. So it's relationships. And then the other really amazing lesson for leadership that I learned from Jim George Kissel and Bill Belichick is a, is a great example. There's so much to learn about your craft. You're constantly learning how to be better as a leader, as your team and what they're doing. Bill is a student of the game since he was six years old when his father used to take him out for scouting. And since I started managing and player coaching in 75, 77, I was taught learn, 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 learn. And you see these amazing wins that Bill gets because he crafts defense and offenses based on something he learned 10 years ago that applies. So I hated to see what the media tried to turn that into whenever Tom Brady and him parted ways because it turned into this Bill versus Tom, and it seemed so unnecessary. I'm like, why are we making this a thing when they have no idea what really went on behind closed doors and why that situation happened? Well, I can tell you that he's told me more than a few times he and, he and Tom have an outstanding relationship. You know, the media, I think he, I have a public job, you know, you know, where I'm a major league manager. 
it's more public than some of the, uh, most of the occupations. Well, the media has to report about things that are interesting so that people read them, listen to them, or hear, you know, or listen to them on the radio, right? So they, they will try to get things going that are, get people's attention. They need to make a living. So as long as they don't go too far, I, you know, I don't go nuts about it. But, the, you know, for 20 years, who was more responsible? The great quarterback or the great coach? Well, I think Tom probably answered, you know, he played on a great team. He had receivers. He had defense. He had other coaches. And he had Bill. But Bill had Tom at one position, the greatest. But Bill's the guy that put the roster together. Bill's one of the coaches. So Bill says they, they're really good together at this point. That's all you need to know, that no matter what the press is saying, they both have the mutual respect for each other. So I want to talk a little bit about youth sports today and kind of your thoughts on everything's turned into a select sport. Youth sports are treated like a business now, which that's fine. They're there to make money. But because of that, kids at a very, very young age are being forced to make decisions on what sports they want to play. Parents are almost more competitive than the kids are at nine, 10 years old. And from a manager's perspective, what are your thoughts on that? What advice would you give to the parents or coaches? Because I think there's a lot of parents battling this. Well, I'm here again, I'm going to say the truth as the truth as I believe it, right? People can, may have a different opinion and, and may say, you, Tony, you're wrong. Well, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but at least I'm going to tell you what I believe. I believe we've gone way too far with some of that stuff. I think at a, at a young age, trying to pin one a real athlete under one sport, you had a tendency to burn him out. Might even hurt him because he's playing too much of it, doesn't have a chance to take a break. I think that some of the uh, travel squads are, you know, they're, they're a little they're elitist. You need, you need to make, you know, money, and some people can't afford it. Maybe some guys that could be real talents that don't get that opportunity. So the answer is, the more that a young player, whatever sport it is, during his time of the year, that he can actually just play that sport in little pickup games and develop skills and love of the game, better off you are. And that translates a little to the kind of coach. This is not a personal ego thing. You know, you're, if, if you have a losing record, it's not because you're a bad coach. Maybe the other team had a better. Don't take it personal. Make it personal that the, that the players are better the year after they spent with you and going into the next year and they had fun doing it. Some of the things are not going to go in the wrong direction and kids are harmed. How many of your players do you know are multi-sport athletes before they enter into the pros. Well, when I just look at their background, I, the great majority of them are. See, that's, that, that's awesome. Except that recently, right? I, I mean, I think back, I started managing in 78. The great majority of our players in those days did not have travel squads. And, you know, I mean, they played the sports. This, this travel thing now where, you know, uh, and the showcase games and all that, you know, they, they've been coming now for a while. They do showcase players, but I think there's a lot of players that are left behind that don't get the attention. And I think there's some players that get pushed to be special so they can, you know, get the attraction of stars, of, of, of scouts. And they may push their bodies beyond what they're ready to do at that point in their development. So I hate to say I'm, I'm against it because I know I've met leaders of guys who have travel squad and they love the game. So I don't want to paint a broad brush. I just think got to be careful with that. It's a positive experience, and I just wish more kids could experience it. Well, I think you touch on something that a lot of parents or players are probably thinking, that they have to play on those elite clubs and on those travel teams to be recognized. Do you feel like that's where most of the scouts are finding those players? Because you mentioned that you feel like some are being overlooked. I think that those teams get a lot of attention, and Scouts will notice a guy, you know, at age 15 and then three years later, we, you know, they'll track him for three years. There's no doubt that they get exposure. But if you look at the drafts, there's a lot of players that get drafted later in the rounds that are more isolated. 
you know, they don't play it in, in, in maybe in, in hot weather schools and, and there are scouts all over because you can find a player all over. And if you look at the, uh, big league roster, you'll see number one choices and number five and number 15, number 20. So the guys that, that are on those squads, yeah, they get a lot of attention. The other players get some attention. Organizations really try to cover them. I wish we could, we could create more opportunities for the players that are not getting enough play. What advice would you give to a young athlete that really has his mind or her mind set on trying to make it to the big league level, professional sports level? I know you're a big fundamental guy, but even talk about like just the, the mindset and, and what you, what advice you would give them. It's a tough one because who's a player and at what point does he decide he wants to be a baseball player, right? If it happens early in his career, then he's got to make sure that he keeps enough foundation where he stays active and he gets time to rest his body and all that stuff, play other things. But the way you enjoy the game is if you play it well. So if you have a strong arm and can't throw it straight, can't hit the target, then all you have is a strong arm. So there are fundamentals to throw. If you have quick hands, but you don't, you can't catch the ball cleanly to make up for your, for your hands, then there are ways that you learn to catch the ball, hit the ball. So what I'm getting to is there are basics to every part of the game. You take the piece, whether it's base running, defense, offense, pitching, there are basics. And if I am a parent of a, of a player, then I want to make sure that my kid gets the basics, the best basics in Got to be careful. There are a lot of people who just read books and think they know what the basics are. But if you can figure out what the basics are for these these things and really work on those things to where they become skills, then you're going to move very quickly to get attention, get drafted, get to the big leagues. So most of these coaches for the select youth sports, grade school level, middle school level, are taught by volunteer parents. A majority of them obviously have day jobs, have but have nothing to do with leading and developing a group of young children who have different personalities, are at different points in their own body development. So what works for their child might not work for my child, let's say. So if we're talking baseball, what advice would you give to the volunteer dad leading a youth baseball team? I would say um, keep it simple. Have effort. You want your You want your team to represent effort because – Effort is very attractive to a player. He goes out there and he's trying hard. And that's just, that's not a talent. That's a decision you make. And you go, hey, you want to play here? We're going to run off the field. You know, we have lively practices. One of my favorite things to do is, is to be part of a clinic where I can use the 50 years of my experience and talk to coaches. I love coaches' clinics because you talk to them about, okay, if you're going to talk hitting, Here's a two or three basics of hitting. And nowadays, it's not how launching and what's your velocity off the bat. It's where your head and your shoulder are, for example. Same thing with fielding. So if I was a coach, I'd want to learn those basics so I would feel comfortable that I'm teaching the kids. You know, there's A to Z, right? But ABC starts it. And if you miss ABC, then you got the alphabet wrong. You've talked in the past to me about your pat pop theory and how you manage some of your players through those times. Explain that. Part of coaching, teaching, leadership is you have to come from a positive place. I'm here to help you. If you have a problem, me and the staff, we're to help you work through it and get better and fix it. I believe in you, right? Players, for example, or whatever your employee they will tend to rise to your expectations. If they get the impression that you don't think they're very worth very much, for a while they may put a chip on the show, I'm going to show you, but at some point, having some, believing that somebody doesn't believe in you wears you out. So the idea of pat and pop is that once you create this relationship where you show them you care and they trust and respect you, you say, okay, that you're not doing this well enough, you've got to get better. Well, the pep is, you know, hey, man, you're going about the right way. The effort level is outstanding. But right now, 
there's a basic fundamental in fielding that you don't feel from top to bottom. You get the glove on the ground and come bottomed up. So right now you're just, your hands are too high. So the way you're working, Pat, you know, you can make it work because you're willing to work, Pop, but if you want to be successful, you've got to give him the truth about what he's doing wrong. That's the Pop. And then you end up with a Pat. And I know if you do this and you repeat it 20 times over the next week, it's going to be, become automatic and, and, and you're going to be a good fielder. So Pat, Pop, it's based on you start from a positive place, tell them the truth, and you end up with a positive. I believe you can make it work. The only time as a manager, by the way, that the truth comes in sometimes says, you know, I really believe you're a good player. Well, then why am I on the bench? Well, because the way we put it together, this other guy's the regular and you have an important role coming off the bench. may not be happy about it, but you told him the truth. But I can't tell the guy he's a great player and then not play him, right? So you got to be careful what you, how you explain that. You have a great foundation and a great charity, ARF, Animal Rescue Foundation, and you have a program called Pets for Vets, and you do a leadership event in Las Vegas called Leaders and Legends. And I would like to talk about that event because that event was a major life changer for me, and it's a big reason why I started Victory Men's Health after I listened to, attended that weekend and heard Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, or former CEO of Starbucks speak, but talk to people about that Vegas event because it's a phenomenal leadership event that you host. Well, we, I mean, did you miss the first one maybe? No, I attended every Obviously, single one. you've been all 10 of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It starts with learning. And we talked about how important it is not to think you know it all. And so if you can learn, where do you learn? In this place, the Animal Rescue Foundation is something that, you know, I like, there's two things. that It's we, me, we and me, and we or me. When people say, you know, my thing, it's not my thing. It's it's a team function. You know, we've got volunteers, supporters, staff, and you've got the wonderful dogs and cats that make it work. And we help people with needs, right? So it's we, not me. But on the other side, the we and me is what is my favorite thing is because if you really want to feel like you're a part of something, then you have to feel like you're contributing and your contribution counts, but you're contributing to the whole. So it's we. So sometimes to put in your place, well, you know, don't get your ego. It's we, not you. Well, no, wait a minute. It's we and me. You want your ego. You want to be part of it. So that is something that we started just to save a few dogs and cats and be with a lot of Elaine and I started it with our daughters. And over the years, a lot of publicity, we've just grown and grown and grown. The cause is great. The animals will never, ever disappoint you. And if as an organization, if we don't disappoint, then you grow and we've got a good reputation. So the essence of what we started was we were going to, people were going to rescue dogs and cats because we didn't want to euthanize them. We were tired of how many or died. And then we added in that because they have this, a companion animal has this almost miracle-like effect on you with its unconditional love. So we said, okay, find prob- find groups that have needs and we'll match them with. So it could be seniors away from their homes, hospitalized patients, you know, victims of violence, special needs. Well, we figured out, you know, 12 years ago, because we started programming, that veterans were coming back from the Far East and there were going to be like a million coming back and the suicide rate, we said, wait a minute, that's just terrible. You can't do enough for veterans. And we thought, wait a minute, dog. So we, we had the idea of putting together a, a veteran who's got PTS with a dog that's matched to him or her. And we thought just that unconditional love would help change their life. And that's exactly what's happened. And the way you pay for it is with Leaders and Legends. It's in Vegas. You know, as you know, it's you come in Thursday night for a reception and you leave Sunday. Friday, Saturday, you get these sessions, 12 sessions, combination of business, sports, military, adventurers. I mean, name some of the people that have been there. Oh, man. Where you want to start? You know, Howard Schultz was one of the first from Starbucks. We've had the CEO from Coca-Cola, Home Depot. I mean, it's just, and then you get 
military, we've had Medal of Honor winners. We've had, you know, Ad- Admiral McRaven, General McPeak. I mean, it just... You called it PTS versus PTSD. And I think it's important we talk about that because I was at that session when Tom Satterley discussed with the group why it is important to make this distinction. So I have, I've heard that before from veterans, but lately this past November, Tom Satterley, the 20-year ranger, he mentioned that, you know, that PTSD means it's a disorder. And it's not really a disorder. It's like an injury. It's a, you know, it's a mental injury. So they like PTSI. Others prefer just PTS. But whatever it is, what they've gone through, they come back and, and they need some help. I remember I attended very quickly. and you know, I attended at Seattle with Mr. Schultz. He was very concerned about the military and the returning veterans. And he, he had a group of people. What can we do for him? And people were saying, well, we can get maybe help with housing employment, education. To me, I said, dogs. So we've got, right now, we've got 45 dogs that are training. And you pay for the health of the dog. That's a cute story. When we first came up with the idea, we wanted to make sure that we were getting veterans that really were the ones that net. So we tried to approach like the Pentagon, and they thought, well, they really didn't want to meet because they thought I was going to ask for money. And finally, one of the general friends said, no, no. They're not looking for money. And so all of a sudden they opened the door and they, they led us to the VA in Livermore and in Martinez. So now we get the ones that they say, yeah, there's definitely a post-traumatic stress sufferer. The first thought we thought about was besides the dog, what's going to happen? Now you make this amazing family love affair and the dog comes up, you know, with some type of illness or injury or something. We all know the veterinarian. He gives you, well, that's, that's $4,000. And the veteran will say, wait a minute. Most of them don't economically. So the beautiful part about our program is every match that we make for the life of the dog, we will pay all the veterinarian costs. And that gives us you know, our conscience free that we can make the match and the veteran never has to worry. The veteran doesn't pay for anything. And Tom Satterley, who you mentioned, he had a movie made about him, right? Was it, was it Black Hawk Down? Well, it, but I caught down was, you know, that was the battle in Mogadishu. And when he explained it at our place, I didn't know at the time, in the history of American warfare, the longest sustained battle was at Mogadishu for 18 solid hours. And he was part of it down on the ground. That's where he got the Silver Star. The helicopter they got down and, and some of the guys were hurt were killed. That was part of the movie. I mean, he was he was there when Hussein was captured. I mean, this guy's... And his, and his lovely wife, Jen, and now they have a foundation. They realize that a lot of black op guys, when they come back, you know, they're really fried mentally. And they're, they're expected to walk in, hey, honey, you're back in real life. It doesn't happen. So now they have retreats where they put the, the families together where they can work back to the states and back to reality little by little. We talked about the importance of the fundamentals in baseball, and the fundamentals of life are obviously just as important Admiral McRaven wrote a book called Make Your Bed, and I love that book, and I read it to my son, who's now 10 years old, because I do believe if you start your day with something as simple as just making your bed, you've completed a task, you've accomplished something, and now you have a routine started. But Admiral McRaven also told a story at your leadership event that resonated with me. He told the story about when the U.S. captured Saddam Hussein, and he would visit him frequently, but never, ever spoke to him because he didn't want to give Saddam the sense of power. And over the course of those 30 days, he watched Saddam wither away into a weak, old, pathetic man. But he compared that to, in contrast, Nelson Mandela, who was in prison for decades but came out stronger than ever. And that story really resonated with me because obviously the title of the podcast is Women Want Strong Men. And it really defined the difference when looking at what is truly a strong man versus a weak man. Well, as a PS to that, recently he wrote another book. It's called The Hero's Code. And his chapters are the elements of, of heroism, like the first one is courage and humility. You know, it's the same thing. It's a bunch of, of uh, short chapters. It's a really quick read, but very meaningful. I remember when you first told me about the podcast, I love the title. To me, civilization needs strong men and strong women. 
you don't want strong men and not have strong women and vice versa. And I think there's so many distractions out there trying to figure out who you are and what you are. But I don't know if you have children. They want to see a strong father. They want to see a strong mother. Mostly a, a caring mother or father. So I don't think that that women thrive more if, if men are less less strong and, and vice versa. I think we need each other. That's exactly how I feel. It, it felt like we started getting in this pattern of you had to tear down men for females to be successful, or if a female was successful, then maybe her man was less. And I'm just like kind of sick of that narrative. And I just wanted to bring my perspective on how they can coexist. You obviously know my husband. He's a strong man himself, and he supports me. And it, it, the relationship works that way. Since we're on the topic of books, you're a big, avid reader. Are there any books that you're reading right now that you would recommend or anything you finished recently? I go back to my upbringing. You know, my dad was a very hard laborer. Just worked his butt off, man. So I learned hard, the value of hard work. My mother was always concerned with education. She's Spanish. My dad's Sicilian. Early on, I'm talking about like six or seven years old when I could start to read, she would bring in a book from the library. And I remember reading about like the the Mountaineers and Kit Carlson and all those. And I fell in love with books as a kid. And I have a standing rule with all my players. If you ever see me at the hotel, on the airplane, in a restaurant, and I don't have my best friend with me, it's a book, I'll give you $1,000. It ain't going to happen. And I keep all my books. Cause that, you know, right now the new facility we have for the veterans, we got a lot of those books that where sooner or later they're going to get sorted so they can read them. But I think that in my case, during the off season, I always felt that this was a time for me to try to grow as a leader. So I would read serious books about leadership, biographies, whatever it was. But once the, once spring training starts and my life is full of stress and I read to get away from it. So then I read nothing but fiction. You know, I got a bunch of guys that, that I read all the time and I got, I keep the hardbacks and Someday you visit the facility, you'll see them all out there. We'll name a few. Like, what are you reading right now? I hate to admit this. I'm reading a Patterson book now. I hate to admit it because he writes a quick, short chapter. You know, smart. But years and years ago, he started writing with help. And I never liked that, personally. But a, a friend of mine who's a coach with me, Ron Renick, he told me, he said, get the new Patterson. Because it's, it's one that he just wrote about Alex Cross, the FBI psychologist. And it's sure enough, him writing it, it's, it's a heck of a read. But I remember years ago, I met Vince Flynn, who passed away because of uh, prostate cancer, but he's from Minneapolis. His brother was a policeman in St. Louis. I read all the Mitch Rapp. There are movies about it. Or, wait a minute, wait, Mitch Rapp or Jack Reacher. Jack Reacher is Lee, is, is Lee Child. And then there's Mitch Rapp. Anyway, I get him confused. And what about Grisham? I, oh, John Grisham as a Cardinal fan. I got all his books. He was at Leaders and Legends. Yeah, he, he, he presented one time. And you know, to me, everybody has their, their artists that they like. You know, maybe you like a musician the best, maybe a painter. I've always preferred, you know, a dancer. I've always preferred the author. That's at the top of my chart. So I got a whole bunch of those guys that I read all the time. And I, you know, we share it with other guys when they read somebody new. They'll say, hey, why don't you try this guy? And I try it. And everybody's. Well, most people probably don't know this about you, but you do have a fond appreciation for music as well. So who would you say your top music artist is? Because you know a lot of them, too. That, that's the worst one right now. How am I <laughs> going to answer? Because whoever I answer, I'm going to leave off a bunch. Or maybe can you tell them what Bruce Springsteen gave you before you had in your office for a long time? Oh, quick story. With, and I only know him some. I don't know him as well as I know some of the other guys. But he came in 98 with his son, I think it's Ethan, maybe, Ian, Ethan, to see McGuire. And he left on Sunday, and McGuire didn't hit the home run. And as he was leaving, I convinced him, what are you doing tomorrow? He said, we're just going back home. I said, tomorrow, you got a steak. Tomorrow, the Cubs coming in, and Sammy and McGuire are going to be here. It's going to be electric. So he came back. McGuire hit his 62nd that night. So from then on, when he's at a concert, my wife and I, we can visit him. But in 06, that was the year that we won 83 games and then we won the World Series. In January, from St. Louis, hey, there's a big 
box here for you and couldn't tell who it was from. I said, well, open it. And they pulled out. It was a guitar signed by Bruce. And it said, congratulations on the championship, glory days. <laughs> Where's that guitar now? It's it's hanging at our, in the main lobby there with all the other guitars from the performers that, that have played for us. So as we're wrapping up here, just some personal stuff about you, because you eat out most of the time. Where would people find you? Like we're going to do Chicago and St. Louis. So if you're visiting St. Louis, where is somebody going to find you eating dinner? I'm not going to tell you because I'm going to be with my book and I want to <laughs> bet my privacy, but it'll be nine times out of 10. It's going to be something Italian. Okay. What about Chicago? Italian. Oh, come on. You can give a location. No. You, you think somebody's going to stalk you out every night for dinner? No, I don't know. If, well, it depends on how we're playing. <laughs> if, we're, if we're playing good, then I want to read my book. If we're playing bad, then I want to avoid them. So, so you're vegetarian. So, you, so you're going to find you at Italian. A, at Italian place. Yeah. Okay. Well, I appreciate your time here today. Is there anything else? Well, I watched you grow up. When I went to St. Louis, you were just a 20-year-old baby, and, and now you've grown into this mother and wife and entrepreneur and I have great admiration and respect you know how much affection I have for you so I think this podcast is a very smart thing to do I value our relationship yeah Tony and I are are great friends and I met Tony oh man we're probably 15 or so years ago playing golf we just happened to get paired up in a celebrity golf tournament together and that was the start of our friendship and I really look up to you and you've taught me a lot about leadership and business and I have the utmost respect for you and you're just fierce fierce competitor like you're not going to find somebody more intense than Tony LaRusso well believe me my line of work the manager on the other side is is always just as fiercely competitive as me it comes down to the players but true to my my upbringing like right now, the only thing that counts is what we do with the 2022 season. Forget about the Hall of Fame and everything that's happened before. We want to get to October again. And it's when you keep it, when you keep looking forward, one of these days I may even figure out what ATD means. <laughs> that's kind of funny. Tony has all these like motivational quotes and things that he plans on using for the 2022 season. And we were looking at the whiteboard and he's kind of going through what he's thinking and, and what he's going to say. And there's this ADT written there. And he goes, what is that? What do I, what do I mean by that? Driving me nuts. I got to figure <laughs> out what it was. It's going to deliver such a big impact whenever we figure out what it actually means. A dot T dot. I don't know. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you, okay, Tony. Thank you. Thank you. 